0: Right. So today we're going to be looking into the answer to a very important question again. And this question that we're going to be asking today is how new is the New Testament church? How new is a New Testament church? You see, most in mainstream Christianity today believe that the idea of a church is actually a new concept that is unique to the New Testament. And for this reason that what they do is they see the church as separate from everything that came before. It's a totally different thing. It's a new concept that's unique to the New Testament. And this belief forms a foundation to how many believers today understand the message of Scripture as a whole. But the question I want to ask today is how new really is the New Testament church. How new really is the New Testament church? So let's go ahead and open the service in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We come together and worship you. And I pray, Father, that you would give us clarity in this matter and help us to answer this foundational question to how you interact with believers, especially in this period we consider under the new covenant. I pray that you bless the rest of this time. It's in the name of your Son, issue I pray. Amen. So, question for you today, should we approach scripture with a bias? What do you guys think? Do you think we should approach scripture, when we open scripture and we look at it and we're reading a passage, do you think it's a good idea or a bad idea to look at that passage with a bias? Bad idea. idea. I mean, and we can understand why, but another question I want to ask you today is, do you think that's avoidable? Because I don't think that It really is. I think everyone, and whether we like it or not, when we go and we approach Scripture, when we look at a passage, the unfortunate reality is that each of us approach Scripture with some degree of bias. And that bias can come from different sources. Sometimes that bias comes from teachers we've listened to in the past, and they've taught us a certain uh, thing or about that passage or about other passages or what Scripture says as a whole, and and that affects the way we interpret a passage. Sometimes it just comes from our own studies and, and the way we've understood it in the past. But eventually what ends up happening is as we study scripture, we create in our mind a paradigm that of what we believe represents God's plan for, for mankind as a whole. And this paradigm in turn becomes like a set of glasses through which we view the rest of scripture. So, who here is wearing glasses? And this can be like prescription glasses. It can be I'm wearing contacts right now. You know. So all of us, a lot of us, have worn glasses, whether it be sunglasses or whatever, 3D glasses in the past, whatever that may be. So, what happens when you wear glasses? What does that do for you? What that? How, how does that affect things? Yeah, but it, it changes the way you see things, right? And, and it affects your vision. You know, sometimes, what were you gonna say? Enhances uh, anything visual. Yeah, especially if you're wearing like prescription glasses, they, they enhance your, your, your vision, right, as you said. So what happens is, is, is no matter what kind of glasses they are, your view, the way you see the world, changes slightly to some degree or another. If you wear prescription lenses, it makes everything look sharper and you can see better. But how about what happens if you were to wear green-tinted lenses, right? Just ev- your lenses are like a really deep-tinted green. What would happen? Well, everything you see is going to look kind of greenish, right? And it's going to kind of distort the color that naturally exists in different objects you see. It's going to make it look greenish, right? Does that make sense? And the same thing, what I want you to see is kind of an analogy for what the way we approach Scripture and we see Scripture because the... Um, whatever glasses we're wearing and the way become kind of kind of change the way we see things. So the same thing ends up happening when we use scripture. We create a paradigm in our minds of what we think the bigger picture of scripture is and what we believe that God's overarching plan for mankind is. And then with that view, it becomes a set of glasses. So then everywhere we go in scripture, we view the passages through that lens. And it's kind of, that's, that's kind of the bias we have. Now, if we have the correct paradigm, and, and our understanding of how God interacts with people throughout time and God's overall plan for, for mankind and in Scripture is, is correct, we have that correct understanding, then that actually can be a good thing. And it becomes kind of like a set of prescription lenses for us, or almost like a magnifying glass, that as we go to an individual passage in scripture, it helps us to see sharply and clearly what that passage is saying in the greater context of scripture. However, what happens if our glasses we're wearing, our paradigm as we view scripture, what if that is wrong? What if that's incorrect? And most people don't even stop to consider that. Maybe that's a possibility. But what happens if it is? What if it's completely wrong? Well, what ends up happening is everything you see looks a little green, right? It distorts the whole world that you see. And as you go to individual passages, all of a sudden, it, there's something just off about it. It's not quite right. And you can look at something, and it's going to just take on that green tint, whether it actually has a green tint or not. It's like everything we see is tinted by glasses we are wearing, and we're unable to see or comprehend what we are reading. And instead of helping us, our system ends up blinding us to God's truth. You see, the problem is whenever we encounter a scriptural passage, what we do is we try to make it fit our system. Has anyone ever heard of what's called confirmation bias? It's something where like, where everything... So you have a, a preconceived idea about a thing, and then every fact you hear about that thing confirms your original belief, even, even though it may or may not in reality. But, but you see it through that lens. You, you rationalize the facts to make them fit your preconceived idea. and That's what's called confirmation bias. And, and that kind of becomes very dangerous because often when and if we're studying scripture, if we've got a bad idea, a bad system, a bad paradigm in our heads and we go and look at scripture. When we see a passage that doesn't fit that paradigm, doesn't fit that system, it doesn't cause us to question the paradigm the way it should. Instead, what typically happens, and I've seen a guilty of myself, is that we assume that someone who's smarter than us has already figured out that, hey, the passage we're reading actually does fit with our system. It just we're not smart enough to understand it. We convince ourselves that we just aren't smart enough, or haven't had enough time to study out the passage to ourselves understand how it fits. But what doesn't happen is we never go and and ask the question. Well, hey, maybe the system is bad. Maybe this is maybe the whole system's wrong. We assume the system's correct, and we try to take the passage and make that conform and morph around that passage. In other words, uh, around that system. In other words, we end up elevating the paradigm over clear scripture, and we don't prove all things and hold fast to that which is good the way we're supposed to. So obviously, bias in how we approach scripture can be a major barrier when it comes to interpreting passages in scripture. And it's far from the only challenge we have to overcome, though. Another major challenge that we have to overcome when we're studying scripture concerns language. You see the Bible was originally written and most of us understand this in primarily two languages. You have the language of Hebrew and you have Greek and along with you have a little bit of Aramaic in there as well. But the Old Testament is mainly written in Hebrew and the old and the New Testament is primarily written in Greek and this unfortunately greatly complicates the task of those of us who seek to understand the bigger picture of scripture and how God's overall plan transcends from the Old Testament <coughs> the New Testament because much debate today centers around the divide or I suppose depending on the way you see it the lack of divide between what we call the Old and New Testaments. People argue today how they fit together or whether in fact they really fit together at all. Questions like did Jesus come to form a new religion when he came? Does the New, te- new, co- I'm sorry, new Covenant replace the Mosaic Covenant? What's God's plan for Israel, especially in the New Testament? Does the Torah apply today? And of course, it also affects the question we're studying today, which is how new is the church and what is the church? These are all questions that are affected either directly or indirectly by what I'm gonna call today the scriptural language barrier between what we call the Old and New Testaments. And this is because when we start reading in Genesis, and you go on, you go through the Torah, You go through the Psalms, you go through the prophets, we begin to see consistent themes develop. You start to notice patterns that develop all the way through and you can trace the themes and how God teaches more and develops them and and helps give us a sharper understanding of all these different concepts as you're reading through the Old Testament. But then all of a sudden you get to the time of the Messiah and the language abruptly changes. It goes from Hebrew and it switches to Greek. And the problem with that is, is that when you go from one language to the next, you get this new vocabulary. You get a new set of words that exist in Greek versus in Hebrew. And so for example, instead of having, like in Hebrew, you'd have the, the word Elohim to refer to God. Whereas once you hit the Greek, you get the, the word Theos, which they both mean God and they both mean the same thing. But they're, this, they're just different words because they're in different languages. I mean, a clear example you can kind of see of that as well is, is when you're reading through the English, you see in the Old Testament, you see like a word like Elijah, and you get to the New Testament, you see the word Elias, and you're like, oh, well, I think I can make the connection that Elias is the same as Elijah, It just ends up getting kind of butchered by the, the uh, transliteration between languages there. And or, or for example, you have like Jeremiah becomes Jeremiahs. Same meaning, of course, but they're just different words because you have different languages and different, different uh, vocalizations are in effect. And a lot of these things are pretty obvious. We can tell, you know, Jeremiah is, is Jeremiah, and you, that's pretty easy to prove, but this becomes more of an issue when it comes to words that, whose meanings aren't as straightforward and obvious. You see, often we're forced to judge whether certain words we find in the Greek scriptures are new concepts or whether they are just Hebrew concepts or concepts we learned in the Old Testament that were just translated into Greek and they're just using different words to mean the exact same thing. You see, you know, it's very possible that certain words and phrases we find in the Greek scriptures are meant to communicate new concepts and sometimes we have to ask the question whether they are simply meant to refer to or expand upon concepts that were originally taught using Hebrew words in the Old Testament? Because it really could be either one. Maybe the word in question is a new concept that's never been discussed before, but maybe it simply means the same thing as a Hebrew word that was used in the Old Testament. And when you combine this idea of the language barrier and you combine that with the obstacle of bias as we approach scripture, what you have is a recipe for disaster, if you're not careful. And that's why it's important to be aware of these challenges so that when we do go and try to interpret a passage, especially in the New Testament, we can check ourselves and we can ask, you know, am I reading this carefully enough and letting Scripture speak for itself, or am I trying to read my system into this passage? (coughs) Or again, is what I I am seeing in in this New Testament passage, you have to ask, is what I'm seeing this New Testament passage a new concept or is it just the Greek way of saying something that was already said in the Old Testament? So as we go and ask, and, and ask the question we asked initially of how new is the New Testament church, I want us to keep those two potential obstacles in our mind and ask ourselves, are these a factor in how we've previously understood these passages? So start with today, we're asking the question, how new is the New Testament church? Now the word behind church in scripture, in the New Testament, is translated from the Greek word ekklesia. The word ekklesia. And it means called out to assemble. And I think oftentimes when we're looking at a kind of what people might look at as kind of a technical word in scripture, a lot of times it's good to go back and see well how is this used in a kind of a secular context so that we can understand kind of why it was used to to refer to what it does in the religious context. So one example of how this is used in like kind of just a secular non-religious context is in Acts chapter 19. So turn with me to Acts chapter 19. In non-religious contexts it's was used, and we can see this both here in Acts 19 and also in uh, extra uh, biblical uh, uh, works from that time period in Greek, it's used to refer to like a public meeting. So turn with me to Acts chapter 19. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. Acts chapter 19, we'll pick it up in verse 21. Acts chapter 19 verse 21 says, After these things were ended, Paul purposed in this spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season, and at the same time there arose no small stir about that way. And we see this this phrase, that way, and that's kind of a reference to the doctrine of Yeshua, and we see that kind of throughout the book of Acts especially, and that's kind of like what it was referred to as as that way, the way, you know. So it's kind of a reference to the doctrine of Yeshua. So we move on on to verse 24, it says, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he had called together with the workmen of like occupation, and said, Sirs, ye know that this, but that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple, <coughs> excuse me, with the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. So this silversmith we see here named Demetrius, he goes to his friends and he's like, hey, if people start worshiping and believing in Yeshua and stop worshiping Diana, we're all out of a job, and because no one's going to want to buy our statues of this goddess Diana if they're worshiping Yeshua instead. So what do they do? They go, moving on to verse 28, it says, And when they had heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And the whole city was filled with confusion. And having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions in travel, they rushed with one accord into the theater, And when Paul would have entered in unto the people, the disciples suffered him not. And certain of the chief of Asia, which were his friends, sent unto him, desiring him that he would not adventure himself into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. So here we see that these silversmiths go out, And they get all their friends, and they basically go out and start a full-scale riot here in this city. And they go and grab two of Paul's friends and rush into this auditorium. And they're all shouting, Great! Great! Great is Diana of the Ephesians! And they're just shouting this over and over again. But it it seems that most of the crowd kind of had no idea why they were even there. You know, they're all in there, and they're like, you know, why, why are we even here? Why are we yelling this? I think we all know this already. You know, and you look at verse 32 there, it's kind of what it says. It says, some therefore cried one thing, and some another. For the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. So most of them didn't even know why they were there in the first place, but they're all just shouting this for an extended period of time. But what I want you to notice about this verse is the word assembly. Or is actually the word "ecclesia" that is almost always translated in the New Testament as church? So I think this kind of helps us connect the dots and understand what is, does this word mean? What is an ecclesia? What is a church? And no, it does not mean riot. What it means is an assembly of people. It's a gathering of people that come together for a purpose. They come out of their homes. They come to a central location. And they're united around a singular goal. Whether that's shouting, great is the of the Ephesians, or it's coming to worship God, as we see in most times this word is translated. So, mainstream understanding. Now, the first time in Scripture that we see this word ecclesia used is in Matthew chapter 16. So, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and uh, we were here last week a little bit going over Um, binding and loosing and that sort of thing, and just understanding what that refers to. But this is the first time we see in Scripture this word "ecclesia." Matthew chapter 16, we're going to pick it up in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist some Elias, and others, Jeremias, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven." And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here we see the Messiah asking his disciples who they think he is. And of course we have in this passage Peter's confession, as it's called, that Yeshua is indeed the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Yeshua responds to Peter by saying, that on this confession, the doctrine that he is the Messiah, he's going to build his church. Or in Greek, you have the words build his ecclesia. Now, according to mainstream Christian doctrine, <coughs> sorry, I'm kind of fighting a cold here a little bit. So the Messiah here is communicating a new concept to his disciples. That's the mainstream understanding of this passage, is that Yeshua here, he's taught, all of a sudden he uses this brand new word to talk about this brand new concept of this brand new organization he's about to create, this brand new institution called the church. And they argue that this new institution would replace the Old Testament institutions of the temple, of the synagogue, of national Israel, and so forth, that existed before this time. So one commentator I was reading explained this really well. Just so you understand, I'm not making this idea up. This is kind of the mainstream understanding that I used to understand. And uh, so I put it up on the screen here because it's kind of hard to, to listen to it and it's, it's very concise and uses a kind of larger word. So it might help if you can kind of reread it, but I'll go ahead and read it for you here. It says, Peter would have understood several truths from the expression. So he's talking about this, this uh, passage in Matthew 16 here. He says, first of all, The word ecclesia would have been a striking contrast to Jewish concepts such as a temple, synagogue, tabernacle, kingdom, etc. Peter would have understood that this was a new concept based on the common Greek word for assembly. He would have understood that Christ was not going to use the sacral society, that means like like a another word for like a theocracy, like a basically a government under a god versus like a civil government, or I suppose I would take the place of a civil government. He understood that Christ was not going to use a sacral society of Judaism anymore, nor the institutions thereof. In other words, what this commentator is saying is that Peter would have seen Yeshua's use of the word ecclesia, or church, as a new thing in contrast to what he calls the, quote, Jewish concepts of the temple, the synagogue, etc., and that these things would no longer be used by God for his worship. That, that's what Peter would have understood from just these, this phrase in Matthew. And because, as I mentioned earlier, that the Greek word behind church was commonly used in non-religious contexts, <coughs> this commentator believes that Peter would not have associated the word "ecclesia." with any existing religious institutions at all. He would have only understood this word in its non-religious context, like, for example, the, the riot in Ephesus there. That would have been the context and the understanding he would have had of this when, when Yeshua uses this word. That's the only thing. So he basically has to connect the dots and say, what, what does Yeshua mean about this ecclesia? oh, he must be referring to some sort of assembly, and he would have understood, according to this commentator, that it's a different assembly than any assembly that existed in the Old Testament. <coughs> so said another way, this commentator is saying that Peter would have had to piece together what Yeshua meant by the word church by considering what it meant to him in day-to-day life, and then try to reinvent its, what it means in a religious context or religious usage. So on the surface, You can understand how this interpretation seems to make some sense, especially if this was indeed the first time Peter had heard this word used in a religious context. So if this was the first time Peter had ever heard the word church used in a religious context to refer to some sort of church connected to God, then you could kind of understand how that interpretation would make perfect sense. In addition, this is a very... um, convenient i would say interpretation for most of mainstream christianity and the reason is is because it fits the mainstream paradigm that says the church replaces the old testament system so this is a very convenient understanding of this because they believe already that the church replaces the old testament system so therefore they have to understand that that's what jesus is teaching in this passage however it is interesting to note as we're studying this passage here that the word build in this passage does not mean to build from the ground up. What it means instead is actually to edify. That's how it's translated elsewhere in scripture is to edify, meaning to build up something that already existed in the past. So it's not Jesus isn't saying I'm going to start from the ground up and build a build a church off of this idea. Instead he's he's saying I'm going to continue building my church based or using the confession you've just made. So this suggests that what Yeshua is referring to is not something brand new, but something that already existed in his time. That's very interesting, which, what I want you to understand. So that brings us to our question, is ecclesia, is the New Testament church a new concept? <coughs> something I want you to understand is this: not necessarily a bulletproof assumption to assume that Peter would have understood the word ecclesia to be a contrast to the existing religious institutions. I mean, that's an assumption that is made in that quote from Dr. Strauss there that I had up on the screen. The assumption is, is that Peter had never heard this word used in a religious context. However, that's not a bulletproof assumption. I wanna kind of show that to you today, that there's reasons to believe that maybe he had in fact heard this word used in a religious context, nor in fact is it clear, another assumption that's made, that he was forced to rely on his understanding of the sec- secular non-religious usage of the word ecclesia to try to piece together what Yeshua meant. To the contrary, we actually see in scripture examples of first-century Jews using this word ecclesia to refer to not a new institution but Old Testament institutions. One example we find of this is in uh, Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 and verse 38. We were here earlier today. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. And it's really interesting. I, was, I learned today as well. Is, I mean, as you're going through that passage, in the past I was like, why would, why, what is he, I mean, he just basically recounts their history. And then he's like, you guys, talking to the Jews, he's like, you guys are just, you know, you always, you know, kill the prophets and whatever. And it says they were cut, cut to the heart. And they proceed to stone him, and I'm like, well, that escalated quickly. I feel like they probably would have been falling asleep for the first half of their history there, which they already knew. And then he says this apparently inflammatory thing, and they just immediately try to kill him. Well, I, th- I mean, it's interesting. The two main people he focuses on in that passage are um, Joseph and Moses. Who are those two people? Well, the Jews would have understood at that time that those were the two main people in the Old Testament that prefigured redemption. And they were the two people in the Old Testament, main primary people in the Old Testament, that the Jews rejected. So what is Stephen saying? He's saying, you guys, by the way, just rejected your Redeemer again. And that's why they stoned him. But As we come to Acts chapter 7 and verse 38, it says, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, which the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles given to us. So we can talk about the context of this later or whatever. But for now, what I want you to understand is that what Stephen is referring to is a church in the wilderness. And this is in the context of Moses. This is in the context of the children of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And he talks about what he calls a church in the wilderness. And obviously this is before Yeshua's statement to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. In this verse, Stephen uses this word ekklesia during his sermon to a mob of angry fellow Jews in a clear reference to the assembly that was in the wilderness under the leadership of Of Moses. He speaks of this church in the wilderness of Sinai. And it's interesting to see that Stephen chooses to use this word, ecclesia, to refer to the Old Testament congregation. That's what this word behind church is. It's ecclesia. So he takes the same word that Yeshua uses in Matthew 16 and he says, hey, by the way, there was one of those in the Old Testament. There's one of those under. Moses at Mount Sinai. You'd think if the, if the Jews that Stephen is talking to in this sermon had never before heard of the word church or heard it really used, the word ecclesia used in a religious way before, you'd think they probably would have been a little bit confused in what Stephen was saying. Right? Remember, Stephen is talking to people who do not believe on the Messiah. They don't have the background of this understanding of a church according to mainstream understanding. So you'd think that if, if Stephen would have used this, and they never heard of it used that way before, they would have been like, What why is he talking about some Roman style assembly back in back in uh, Exodus there? What 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 is he talking about exactly? So I don't think that what, that's what we have going on here. I don't I don't think Stephen's using terminology. in a way that, that his audience had never heard before. Instead, I think that what Stephen is doing is he's using terminology his audience was in fact familiar with and probably used in their own conversations when referring to the congregation in the wilderness. So I, I think that his audience there would have understood, and probably, because you have to think, what word would they have used when they were reading the Hebrew scriptures and they wanted to talk about it in Greek? What word would they have used to talk about the congregation that's in the wilderness? Well, probably a word that means the same thing as congregation, which is assembly, which is ecclesia. And this is by far not the only place that we see this um, This show up here. For example, as a second witness, Paul seems to equate the word ecclesia with the Old Testament congregation as well. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to see Paul actually quote an Old Testament passage in Greek, and it's interesting his choice of of words as he translates his Old Testament passage into Greek. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. It says, saying, This, of course, is a quotation. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church, or that's the word, ecclesia, will I sing praise unto thee. So here we have Paul quoting from Psalm chapter 22 in verse 22. So again, just like we did um, when we're looking at the Hebrews passage where Paul quotes from Jeremiah, let's go back and take a look at Psalm chapter 22 to kind of get an understanding of what this word means in the original. Psalm 22 in verse 22, this is the passage that Paul is quoting from in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12 and uses the word church in. So let's try to figure out what word does he translate as the word church. Psalm 22, 22 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Of course, this is actually the same psalm that we were re- or, uh, singing in the, last, in the last service there, dealing with um, the, it's kind of a messianic psalm. It's talking about the Yeshua, how Yeshua will sing praises unto God the Father in his church, in his assembly. And of course, this is ultimately fulfilled during the Last Supper, where Yeshua sings a hymn before he goes to Mount Boloch. But the only real difference we see, and we can see this basically word for word, at least in English, but the main difference we see in English is we see this word congregation in Psalm 22 get translated by Paul as church in Hebrews. Now, the word behind congregation in Psalm 22 is this Hebrew word kahal, and it's used throughout the Old Testament to refer to the congregation of Israel beginning with Exodus. And it's actually, actually you see it even earlier with um, Jacob, I believe, where God um, pr- prophesies to Jacob. He says, your descendants are going to be a congregation, a kahal of nations, a congregation of Gentiles. But what we see here is that um, uh, Paul quotes this Old Testament passage and takes the word kahal and basically says this word kahal for congregation is the equivalent of the Greek word ecclesia. So he, like Stephen, seems to use the two words interchangeably as if they meant the exact same thing. So that begs the question: if the Jews during this time used the word ecclesia to talk about the Old Testament congregation, as it does appear that both Paul and Peter, or Paul and Stephen, I should say, both saw this, um, saw these two words as interchangeable and used them in their own as. In their own writings and uh, and uh, speaking, it seems to indicate that that was a word that the, that they used those two words interchangeably in their day to day conversation. And if that's the case, and this is something that the Jews understood as well, that raises some questions about whether Peter, in fact, would have understood the word ecclesia to be a brand new concept in Matthew chapter sixteen. It begs the question about whether Peter also would have understood the word ekklesia when Yeshua used it in Matthew 16 to mean something that had already existed for quite some time when Yeshua came on the scene. Indeed, now that we have seen examples of this word being used in a religious context during this time, you would think that that, uh, Yeshua would have been more careful to explain that the ekklesia that he was referring to was going to be a new thing called the church, and he wasn't, in fact, talking about the Old Testament congregation, the way Paul, Paul refers to it and the way Stephen refers to it. But what's interesting is that he, in fact, never even hints in this direction, nor, by the way, do you see that hint anywhere in the rest of Scripture. You know, it's interesting. Have you ever noticed that for some reason, as you read through the Old Testament, that there's never a single passage in the entire Old Testament that prophesies of a future new institution called the church. There's no no prophecy of this new new institution arriving. This new thing that God would create in the future. Never once do you see that, um, that prophesied. And that's really should raise some questions because in Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, God says that he does nothing without first revealing it to us by his prophets. In other words, he says you can predict what's going to happen in the future because I've already told you it's going to happen. So why do you not see some sort of prediction or allusion to or anything at all in reference to such a massive institutional change (coughs) as discarding everything believers had been doing for thousands of years and suddenly switching to a brand new institution called the church? Why do you see no hint or no allusion, no prediction of this happening. This silence should be deafening. You should notice that this is such a tremendous lack of prediction in the entire Old Testament. That's not where the problems end for the mainstream system. More passages that don't fit the paradigm. Let's go ahead and look at a few more. After Yeshua died, Peter does not seem to be at all in a hurry to shed all connections to the existing religious institutions to create something new and distinct. You would think that if, if um, Dr. Strauss's and mainstream Christianity's understanding of Matthew 16 were correct, then you'd see in Acts Peter and the rest of the, the apostles seeking to put a some gap between themselves and the existing institutions, that they want to separate themselves and show that what they're doing is new and distinct. But <coughs> For some reason, that's not what you see at all. And this is a bit odd, If, if again, if, if it is correct to assume that Peter understood Yeshua's words in Matthew 16 to mean he was creating a new institution of worship. Instead, what we see, on the contrary, is that Peter seems to expect that new Gentile believers would attend, of all things, what he calls a synagogue. So let's take a look with me at Acts chapter 15, and we'll take a look in verse 19. Acts chapter 15 and verse 19. Here we see Peter's opportunity to say, you know what? Yeshua said to me in particular that we're creating a brand new institution It's going to be called the church. And I know you never heard of that before, but what it basically means is, is that we're separate from everything Jewish. That, this is not what we see here by any means. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15 and take a look at verse 19. It says, wherefore my sentence is, this is uh, actually James speaking with, with uh, Peter here. It says, wherefore my sentence is that we trouble them not, from which among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. So, in the context, Peter and James are talking about a group of new Gentile believers that are being confused by certain Jews who are telling them, you know, in order to be saved, what you guys really have to do, if you want salvation, is you need to be circumcised. And obviously, this is totally wrong, because that, was never been, that has never been necessary for salvation, all the way back to Abraham. That, that circumcision was never, has never been a requirement for circumcision, not in Abraham's time when it was, was um, given, not under the Mosaic Law, it's never been. So obviously, that, that can't be correct. And in fact, nor has any other commandment in the Torah ever been given that is necessary to complete for salvation. The Torah has never been the means of salvation. Paul's very clear on that. In Galatians, he's very clear on that. In Romans, when he's talking about salvation, he says, the way you're saved is through faith. That's how Abraham was saved. So we know that today, salvation is by faith as well, and nothing has changed. He's very clear on that. You've never, there's never been anything you can do to earn your salvation. However, this concept, concept takes a few Um, words to explain. So what Peter's not going to try to explain that whole thing in this letter to them right away. But Peter and James say, you know what, the best thing for us to do right now is we'll send them a short list of the major things that they need to do. And in fact, all of these rules are in fact listed straight out of the Torah. And he says that if they keep these laws, that that's kind of just going to be a really good start for them in trying to understand what they're supposed to be doing. And the laws he mentioned are especially applicable (laughs) and make perfect sense, because they would have been applicable to those who had just exited a pagan temple worship system. So, talking about idol worship, and fornication, and all that sort of thing, he says, you guys need to just, like, get that stuff out of your life. That's the first thing to start with, and then you can move on to the the other things that are more important and and obviously this is not an all-inclusive list because it leaves out some very important commandments such as you know laws against stealing or bearing false witness or adultery or killing or murder and whatnot he doesn't list any of those so we can't can't walk away from this thinking this is somehow an all-inclusive list and that if they just did these things God would be happy with them but these are just kind of a, a list of major things he says you guys need to work on these things first get these things out of your life and Peter's and James don't seem to be too worried about troubling them with too much of all the things that they need to do right now. For, he says, he says in that passage, he says, For Moses hath in every city them that preach him. So in other words, what Peter and James are saying is that the new Gentile believers will have plenty of opportunities to learn what God expects of them, regarding, for example, in the context of circumcision, etc., when they go and hear the law of Moses taught in their local synagogue. If the church was a new institution, it was brand new, it was separate from everything, quote-unquote, Jewish, or actually God-ordained in the Old Testament, why would Peter tell them to go to a synagogue? You'd think that would be... That, I mean, like there'd be nothing for them to gain from going to a synagogue other than maybe some, some very basic background. But he's very clear here that, there's, that that there's things they need to learn from the synagogue, and that's where they're supposed to go to learn how to serve God. I would argue, But the reason he does this, instead of saying, hey, you guys should go to some church out there. No, he says you should go to the synagogue. Why does he say that? Because I would argue it's because the two are the exact same thing. Both are an assembly of covenanted believers who are looking to worship God. Of course, not all synagogues, especially look at synagogues today. Those are filled with disobedient Jews who are not, who have rejected the Messiah, who are not interested in in keeping the commandments of God, but instead are keeping the commandments of men. So that's not, and the same thing exists with churches today. I can point to <coughs> dozens of churches just in our area that do not, are not interested in keeping God's commandments, that are not interested in worshiping God correctly, but are instead interested in basically man worship. But what a lot of people in mainstream Christianity today don't understand is that the blueprint for what we see as the church today has always existed, or at least as had existed for many years prior to Yeshua in the form of a synagogue. So that's why I I think you don't see a ton of super clear instructions regarding organization and all this kind of stuff, because they kind of were already doing a lot of it. Of course, it's fine-tuned. You have, like, qualifications for a pastor, all that kind of stuff. But a lot of this already existed before Yeshua ever came on the scene. So the question is, why Peter here not say, just go to your local church and, and learn this stuff? because I I think it's not not as distinct as a lot of people want to say it is. Now, surprisingly to many Christians, this concept of believers in Yeshua attending a synagogue is not unique to Acts 15 either. This actually we see in other passages as well. For example, in his epistle, James also seems to have expected that believers would be worshiping in synagogues as well. Turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and we'll take a look at verse 2 James chapter 2 and verse 2 so again we're trying to answer the question what if 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 Jesus, or Yeshua, was trying to tell his disciples that, you know, we're creating a new institution that's completely separate from anything Jewish, whether that be a synagogue or a temple or all these different things. We're going to try to completely scrub that and create basically a new religion here that has new practices, meets on different days, all this kind of stuff. Why do we see these passages? These really just don't fit the paradigm. James chapter 2, verse 2, it says, For if there come unto your assembly, and this word assembly is actually the word synagogue in Greek, so you can read it, if they're coming to your synagogue, a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and they're come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and it goes on from there. But what I want you to see here is that James is talking to these believers in Yeshua about your assembly, your synagogue in the Greek. He's, he's, it's as if he expects that they have their own personal assembly out there, it's their own synagogue in their own local area that they're attending. So the question is, why is he talking about a synagogue? Wouldn't they be in church at this point? And if all they're doing is, is kind of donning their, uh, their uh, journalist uh, uh, credentials and just kind of standing in the back and watching, you know, to try to gain an understanding of kind of how does the Jewish system work so that we can kind of, you know, understand this God of the Old Testament and take, pick and choose what we want to bring into our church. If, if that's what they were doing, <coughs> why is James explaining how to behave. You think they wouldn't, there would be like very minimal interaction, if interaction at all. They would have been just kind of standing in the back. But here it seems that they're not only there, but they're supposed to be kind of on the welcome committee and, and helping to, to make sure they're not being partial and respecting persons when new people come in. So the question is, why is he talking to them about their, their synagogue? Wouldn't they be in church? What, the, I mean, I think the question we need to start asking is, is there really a difference here? Is there really a distinction between these two organizations? So finally, to really drive home the point, Paul seems to say the same thing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26. Talking about New Testament believers that are for some reason in synagogues and not at church. Or the question being, is there really a distinction? Acts chapter 26, and we'll pick it up in verse 11. It says, I punished them oft. This is Paul kind of telling his story about his conversion and what he did before that, before the, the, he was saved on the road to Damascus. It says, and I punished them, the church, the, uh, the church of Jerusalem, oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. I persecuted them even unto strange cities. And he, in fact, says something very similar. Again, I'll talk about what that kind of means. Turn with me to Acts 22 real quick. We'll see that this isn't the only time Paul says this. Acts chapter 22 and verse 19. Paul, again, talking about his conversion. Acts 22 and verse 19, and he said, it says, And I said, Lord, they know, this would be the believers, that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. So what I want you to notice in these two passages is he doesn't talk about how he went into different churches and dragged them out and, and, and because they were in these churches and, and that was different than what the Jewish system was. No, instead it says he goes into the synagogues to, to find these believers. So the question is, if the church was meant to replace the old institutions of worship, what were all the believers doing in synagogues? You'd think that if you wanted to go find them, you go to where they're all gathered together. Why would you go you know, to these synagogues where maybe there's one or two Christians in there? I mean, I would say it's probably because those believers were doing exactly what James told them to do and exactly what Peter told them to do and expected that they would be doing, which was learning how to serve God in the synagogues, you know? So as one final point as well as we kind of wrap this up. All of these passages we see are, in, are very consistent with the fact that as Paul... Went on his different missionary journeys, where did he go? Did he go and, and create new churches? What we're seeing is all every time in Acts as he goes, and he goes into these synagogues and he preaches on the Sabbath day. And then you see examples of where <coughs> there's people who want to learn more. And he says, Yeah, well, we're starting a Bible study down the street. We meet on Sundays. Come join us. No, what does he say? He says, Oh, I'll come back next Sabbath, <laughs> and I'll teach you the next Sabbath day, and I'll come back to your synagogue. So so it's, it's kind of interesting that we, kind of what we don't see. I understand it's kind of an argument from silence, but you, you would think if, if that was the, the correct understanding that, that you would see him inviting people to church, but instead you see him inviting them right back into the synagogues again. And that once, in the entire book of Acts, we see him inviting people to church on Sunday. We never see that. Instead, if people wanted more information, he would consent to come back on the, to the synagogue the next Sabbath day. So of course, what I want is kind of a disclaimer here because if you go and you go on YouTube, you go to maybe back to mainstream Christian churches and bring up some of these passages many teachers who know what they're talking about will have some sort of explanation for a lot of the verses we covered. So I don't want to give the impression that this is necessarily like you show this to somebody and they're going to be like, oh, I've never seen that before. But And because the fact is, I mean, you can take a lot of these systems that mainstream Christianity holds to are well thought out and they try to incorporate all the different passages and so forth. But what I want you to walk away with and, and question is, are they interpreting, is mainstream Christianity interpreting these passages correctly? Or are they making unnecessary assumptions and forcing interpretations on scripture that don't even make sense in order to defend a system that is wrong to start with? Remember, system bias is really strong and sometimes it's impossible for us to see through it to understand what a passage is really trying to tell us. So having seen everything we just went over, whether that be Stephen's sermon about the church in the wilderness, or Paul using the word church and congregation as if they meant the same thing, we saw Peter's expectation that new Gentile believers would attend the synagogue, and James' exhortation on how to behave when he was there, how Paul went to different synagogues and, and grabbed the believers that were for some reason there. We have to ask the question, is the New Testament local church supposed to replace the congregation that was the church in the wilderness under Moses, the nation of Israel from the time of Joshua to the fall of Jerusalem, and synagogues all over the ancient, worlds, ancient world after Judah was scattered, or on the contrary, is the local church perhaps a continuation of that same congregation that has always existed? Is it the same thing except now it just takes on yet another form that God in his wisdom has both adapted for the scattered worldwide state of Israel and also edified by the Messianic (coughs) Covenant. The question is, is there truly a distinction here? So let's ask the question, how new is the New Testament local church? I think the answer is no. It's, It's really not that new. Of course, there are some differences, but we don't have a brand new institution here. That's not what we're seeing. I believe it's the same old congregation, a group of believers assembling around a shared belief in the God of Israel. When you strip away system bias, and you take steps to mitigate the difficulties of the scriptural language barrier, I think the answer becomes clear, as there's almost nothing new about the New Testament local church. Let's go ahead and pray.